0: Why don't we go to God in prayer as we prepare our hearts to uh, to listen to God's word, dear Father? As we come before you today, uh, we truly want to commit ourselves into your hands. Uh, that again, as we come before your word, we pray that I may preach it faithfully, and that we may all uh, truly take it to heart, so that we may be persevered all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ, and that we may have the wonderful promise of eternal life in heaven with you. We pray for all these things name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, okay, how many of you have uh, ever run a marathon? Uh, okay, very few of you. Now, obviously, uh, I haven't run a marathon because uh, I thought the marathon was only uh, 24 kilometers long, but someone else has told me about half an hour ago that it's actually 42. Now, uh... If you ask me, I, I, I always wondered, you know, I don't mind running 100 or 200 meters, but it's always been puzzling to me why someone would want to run so far, and uh, I just want to think to myself, how would you actually manage to run so far? I, I think it would be hard for me to bicycle so far. All right? So I, I, I'm not an expert in running a marathon, so I was sort of thinking, how do you actually get to the end if you are actually going to run a marathon? And uh, I was listening to someone who did run marathons, and he said that actually you, know, you need to know what to expect when you run a marathon. And he said, when he runs a marathon, uh, he knows that after 10 kilometers, his body will start hurting. It's not just his legs, but his whole body would be in pain. But knowing that that's going to happen, he he, he can uh, allow himself that that uh, that experience and be able to work through it. And also, you know, he will be able to know where the steep parts are, where you know where he needs to go in different places, and what to expect. So that by the very end of the race, he will be able to overcome all these obstacles. Uh, Because in a marathon, it's not really how fast you start, but how you finish. So I think the Christian life is a bit like that. A Christian life is like a marathon, and for us to go through our Christian life, uh, unlike what uh, some people think, uh, there will be obstacles, there will be difficulties, and there will be times where we will be in pain, and we will struggle, and we want to drop out of the race. Now believe it or not, I think that chapter 4, is actually a warning to us in terms of the difficulties that we will face as Christians as we As we live our Christian life, unless of course we die tomorrow, but if we live for any extent of time, we will struggle because we are Christians and as Christians. Now, Paul begins like this, right, in chapter 4, you need your Bibles. He says, Therefore, since we have God's mercy, sorry, through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Okay, now, uh, I'm going to say some things which uh, might be a bit shocking to you today, but I think that is it's important because as we look at the historical context of what Paul is talking about in uh, 2 Corinthians, and bring it to ourselves, I think we can see that what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is very It's very similar to the warnings that he would give us in our life today. Now, he begins in verse 1 by saying, Therefore, since we have God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Now, we never begin a sentence in any way by saying therefore, right? We never begin a a sentence of anybody by saying therefore. Uh, Therefore is usually used in the middle of a sentence, uh, in the middle of a, a discussion. And therefore here is actually saying that the ministry that he has Because it is so glorious, because it speaks of life and not death, because it speaks of righteousness and not condemnation, right? He does not lose heart. So last week we saw, okay, this diagram will be helpful for you. Okay, remember last week I showed you this diagram? He said, therefore, because we have this ministry, the ministry that Paul preaches is the ministry of the cross, the ministry of Jesus. And it speaks of forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. And it speaks of the Holy Spirit, the new covenant of the Holy Spirit, where people are renewed from the inside. And this uh, new covenant ministry is much greater than the old because it is surpassing glory. It is eternal glory. It, it will never end. Right? The death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection is the glory that will last forever. And therefore, He says here in verse 4, He has this great and glorious ministry. He does not lose heart. Now, why would He be losing heart? Why would He be discouraged? Why would He be downhearted? Now, as we saw last week, uh, there were people... In the church in Corinth, who were trying to get the Christians to go back to another gospel, uh, the gospel of the law, to go back to rules and regulations. And that's why there was a a temptation for Paul to be discouraged, to be downhearted, because they were turning away from the gospel that Paul was preaching about, the new covenant ministry of the Spirit and Jesus' death and resurrection, to another sort of Christianity. And the new leaders were saying that this was a more impressive message, a, a more Relevant message, a more super-duper Christianity. So in terms of media speaking, right, Paul was losing market share, okay? His audience ratings were down, and uh, the, 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 the reviewers get, were getting tired of the same old material. They wanted Paul to come up with new stuff, new material, more exciting material, more happening things. So what is Paul going to do? Is Paul going to pander to the demands of his audience? Is he going to change his gospel or his message? Well, in verse two, he says, "Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting the truth, setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God." Now, obviously, uh, when Paul is saying that, he's implying that there are other people who have come into the church in Corinth who are using shameful deceptive secret and distorting the word of god I, i'm not sure what translation you're using the uh, in your uh, esv it could be uh, could be used uh secret and shameful uh, methods right now verse 2 is a very powerful sentence uh, the words here, used here disgraceful and underhanded right shameful and secret are literally the words or the language which is used to describe people who are con artists rip off artists and that's therefore that's why he says they use deception or distort the word of God. Now, the word here, deception, is not a good word, right? Deception is not a good word. In fact, in 11, chapter 11, verse 3, which is up here, the same word is used to talk about how Eve was deceived by Satan. Now, this is a very important illusion uh, because we'll come back to that later in what Paul is saying in chapter 4, right? So, here, so, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived, same word, by Satan, serpents, the serpent's cunning, your mind may somehow be led astray from your sincere, pure devotion to Christ. So the word deception here is the word of uh, dishonesty or falsehood. You know, like someone trying to sell you something which says Rolex, but actually it's a fake. right? Or someone is trying to sell you 10 kg of rice, but there's actually only 9. Or maybe you look in the newspaper and you're looking to buy your dream home and the flat has got a wonderful view, but then when you actually go and look at it, it's blocked by another block of flats. Okay, that's the sort of thing, deception. But the word here is not just deception. It says here, he says that not only do they use deception, they distort the word of God. Now, the word distort here is the word of dilution. Uh, Diluting, the original context is diluting wine. So, you have wine, right? So, you only have a little bit of good wine. So, you dilute it with something else so that there's more of it. You can sell it for more and you make a bigger profit. Think of it like today, you know, in China where you have milk and then they add like melanin or something in it to make the milk whiter or brighter or more. Or very recently in a newspaper where you can make fake eggs or fake shark spin, something like that. Okay, So it's, it's diluting something and making it impure but you actually sell it for more. So what he's saying is, he doesn't follow, Paul the apostle doesn't follow what the, these new apostles or new teachers in Corinth are doing by distorting or using deception, but rather what does he do? The positive thing in verse 2? On the contrary, by setting, the forth, the tr- setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See, Paul doesn't resort to uh, distortion. He doesn't re- uh, resort to uh, diluting the word or deceiving people. He just wants to preach the word or the truth plainly. Uh, In a way, he says he doesn't really care if people do not respond to that pure gospel. But his role in his mind is very clear. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant of the Spirit is so powerful and so relevant, the only way to be saved, that is all he's going to preach. He's not going to worry about what other people are doing. He's not worried about whether people are going to listen to it and lose market share. He's just going to preach the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is not something that is a new thing for Paul, right? It's not because he's reacting to uh, what other people are doing. All his life, Paul has said that that is all he preaches. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, up here, you can see here in verse 1 and 2, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, For resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Christ, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. See, for Paul, it's very clear. He never moves from the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and the new covenant of the Holy Spirit working in people. Now, I think this is really relevant for us as Christians because if the Corinthian Christians were tempted to follow these new teachers who were bringing a more impressive gospel, uh, they were bringing a more powerful message, then it, I think we are not very different from the new, uh, sorry, not the new Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians, right? Because we do have a temptation to want to look at new material, more interesting material, more impressive material, a more powerful message. So, um, recently, uh, someone was telling me about this conference uh, that uh, was uh, happening in Singapore. I, I, I don't think I'll get sued for this, but anyway, it's up here, okay? You can't see the title. But it's a, very, it's a very, I mean, this is, if you, go, if, you if you just put in the name, it's all over Singapore, okay? I'm sure some of your Christian friends would be—I would have gone to this. And let me read to you about the lead speaker, right? Okay, uh anyway, so this person is one of the, pi- um, can you read that? Can you read this? Oh, it's very small, isn't it? Okay, I'll read it to you, but you can listen to what I'm saying. This person is one of the pioneers responsible for igniting the revival fire in the churches today. There, there it is, take it. The power of God is all over you. In the name of Jesus, I ask for your healing power to fall, saturate, consume, make him whole. As this person utters another powerful prayer in this meeting, similar to his others, promises to be filled with tremendous works. So now that's a really powerful and impressive uh, message, isn't it? Uh, just the language that is used here, that you will be filled with tremendous works if you come to this talk. There, There's going to be tremendous powers of, uh, what do you call it? Healing. Uh, in In your life, but that 's actually moving on from the gospel the pure Gospel of Jesus Christ and his uh, crucifixion isn 't it? It promises something very powerful, very impressive, but yet it is not the pure gospel which is preached in the Bible and I think it's also deceptive. Uh, my mother, who died of cancer a few years ago, went and waited two hours uh, to meet this Christian healer all the way from Nigeria. And uh, she still died of cancer after a few months later. I mean, I don't think my mother lacked faith, but but the healing that is promised, uh, that is guaranteed almost, it's not something that works, isn't it? Um, Like one skeptic said, if uh, these healers were so effective, instead of going to whatever conference center they're in, why don't they just go to NUH or SGH or Alexandra Hospital or Mount Avernia and just walk up and down the halls and heal everybody? I mean, obviously that's what Jesus did when you read the Bible. That's the way Jesus healed. He didn't need a big conference. He just walked and he healed people. The principal of my theological college John Woodhouse uh, told of an illustration where many years ago he went to a big conference in Australia. And uh, this man preached about Jesus Christ at the beginning. But the main event, the main event was at the end where he came to heal. And he spoke at the front and he gave a very specific uh, instantly. He says, somewhere in the crowd today is someone with a growth on his upper lip. And you struggle with this problem for many years. You've seen many doctors. In fact, last week you saw a doctor, but you have failed to be healed. I know you're in there in the crowd today. I know you've come from the south. I know you've driven up. Come up, and I promise you, you'll be healed. So, of course, this huge conference, I think it was like thousands and thousands of people were all, you know, awestruck. You know that this guy could could see that there was this man here, obviously, with this problem, and everybody was waiting with bated breath. Where is this man? Where is this man with the with the growth on his upper lip? And they're waiting, waiting, and then finally, the small Chinese guy stood up and walked to the front, and everybody roared and clapped, right? So anyway, my principal of the theological college afterwards, he ran to the small Chinese guy after the whole conference, and said, "Tell me, tell me all about yourself. You know, where's the growth?" And he said, what's wrong with you? Why did you need to be healed? And then the Chinese guy said to him, I sprained my ankle playing ping pong. He said, what? You sprained your ankle playing ping pong? But the guy said, you know, you have a growth in your lip. You've been seeing the doctor, blah, blah, blah. So oh, I didn't hear all that. All I heard was you drove up this afternoon. <laughs> right? And, he, and So obviously, what happened, this healing wasn't true. And the same way, uh, next slide. Okay, there's this guy here. And he's actually from uh, the John Wimber School of Science and Wonders, right? So John Wimber is this very powerful uh, movement uh, of science and wonders. And he's come to Australia before. And I remember when he came to Australia, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald, because they're very skeptical in the Western world, they said, okay, before the thing, we're going to check all the sick people with doctors and see what medical condition they have. And then after the healing, we're going to check you all again a week later to see whether you're really healed or not. Because obviously they want to show that they're not healed right. And uh I don't know whether they believe they're sitting morning hair or not, but afterwards, after a week later, they check all the sick people and their symptoms were still the same as before. So to me, this is deceptive preaching, right? And not only is it deceptive, it's because it doesn't it doesn't save people. It saves people to think that they're gonna be healed. But actually the pure gospel is all about salvation and life and and uh and forgiveness. So the first uh, warning that Paul gives in our Christian world is, don't follow a deceptive or distorted word of God. Don't let people dilute the pure word of God, the gospel, with other things. But instead, follow just the pure word of God. And what does the pure word of God say? Well, look at what it says in the Bible, right? It is about in verse 4, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Uh, verse 5, uh, sorry, verse 4, yep. And verse 5, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, and then in verse 13 and 14, right? he says, um, because we know the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. So the gospel is not about healing or some supernatural, powerful, impressive work, but the gospel is about Jesus and his death so that we may have everlasting life. Now in verse 5, Paul warns of something else. He says, we don't for we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Uh, now, many people who preach through this passage, many commentators as well, they sort of brush through the verse 5, right? But I think verse 5 is very important because again, he's implying that the people in the Corinthian church they are not preaching Jesus, but what are they preaching? They're preaching themselves. Uh, they're preaching about themselves, about the power of that God has given them or the, 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 you know, the impressive works that God has given them. Now, uh, this, uh, pastor gave this illustration. I agree with him. You know, when you go to the bookshops, okay, how do you know what is a good book? Well, usually if the cover has a plain cover or just a painting, generally it's not too bad. But if you have a Christian bookshop and you go there and the cover is the whole cover is the face of the speaker or the writer, then you, you have a good idea that inside the book is all about the writer or the speaker. It, it's the same thing when you hear some interviews with some Christian people. It's all about, oh, God has anointed me to do this. God has given me this. You know I did this. I converted so many people. I healed so many people. I did all these things. The glory doesn't go to Jesus. The focus is not on the gospel, but the focus is on themselves. So again, uh, I heard of uh, an interview with Billy Graham. I don't know, did you all do your homework from last week and check out who Billy Graham is? I gave the assignment to the next, uh, the second service because they all didn't know who Billy Graham was. Okay? But Billy Graham was this really famous, famous evangelist, okay? Probably the most famous evangelist or effective evangelist in this, uh, the last century. And he was on the, this show, obviously I, I don't know, in England called Terry Wogan. I never heard of him. But apparently, He's quite like a famous talk show guy, Terry Wogan. Now you think that Billy Graham, with all the history of all the great events, you know, he filled the National Stadium in the 1970s, right? He was so many stories of all the great things God has done for him. But apparently in the one hour of the interview with Terry Wogan, he never once talked about himself, but he always brought the conversation back to Jesus Christ. And in fact, apparently at the end of the interview, he looked at Terry Wogan and he said, Terry, Jesus is all about this. Right? Imagine this book is your sins. Your sins are are, are, are preventing you from having, having a relationship with God. But God has taken your sins and He's put it on Jesus at the cross. I'm sure you've all he- heard this illustration before. Right? He's, he's taken your sins and put your sins on Jesus Christ and therefore you can have a relationship with Jesus. And I really hope you come to our meeting this weekend. And that was the end of the, the interview. So, you know, I mean, you look at Billy Graham, not that we are, you should, you know, idolize the equilibrium. But here was a man who, instead of focusing on what he had done, kept bringing the conversation back to the gospel, what Jesus had done. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, we don't preach ourselves in verse 5, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, obviously, it's very hard for uh, Paul, and it? it's easy for him to say and it's hard to do because, you know, that people turning to a new gospel and there are people who are not listening to Paul anymore. They're rejecting Paul. So how does Paul explain uh, what is happening here? Why is it people are turning away from the pure gospel of Jesus Christ and going to another gospel? Uh, we can say the same for ourselves, right? Why is it, if you look at so many churches, or you look at the church in the West, why is it there so many churches which are liberal but fail to preach the pure gospel? And why is it the church seems to be getting weaker and weaker? Well, the answer is in verse 3 to 5, isn't it? Verse 3 to 6. He says, For even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, We've we've done verse 5, right? For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let, your, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, many principles come of this thing. Basically, he's saying that the role, his role, has never been to convert people, to win people. His role is to preach the word faithfully. God will do the conversion. In fact, he says that in verse uh, 5 that God, God's work converting people is the same or equal to the creation of the world. You notice that? It says there, let the light shine out of darkness. That's the creation account. So as God created the world, so God is able to change people's hearts and bring them to Christ. But he says there that uh, the problem is that when people do not believe it is not because of the failure of the message. It is because Satan is blinding their hearts. Uh, now, I think this is really important because the temptation, for me anyway, uh, maybe for you, is sometimes you know we want to say things which are nice to people. We, we know if you're a sensitive person. I'm a very sensitive person. I, I don't like to offend people. Uh, I like to please people. So you you, you want to change the message. Okay, we'll make it so that it's not so offensive to you and more likable to you. But Paul's message saying, no, 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 you know. Our job, his job, is to preach the Word, the pure Word. And, and and it's God's job to change people. If they're offended, it's not because it is Paul's fault. It's because Satan is working their hearts. Now, I know that this is uh, so important because the temptation is always with us. In the 60s and 70s, uh, I know that uh, reading through literature, and I think even in Singapore, uh, there was a temptation where many people say, okay, let's not talk about the miracles in the Bible. Because, you know, miracles are an obstacle to people believing Jesus. I know that myself, I used to, before my father became a Christian, his obstacle was virgin birth. Ah, yeah, who can believe in the virgin birth? Ah, I'm a doctor, don't tell me about virgin birth, right? That's okay, now you've got IVF, so you got virgin birth, right? But no, that's not, I mean, that's not the case, right? But But the thing is, they'll say, okay, let's take away the miracles and just teach about Jesus, the man, and his teachings. But that's wrong, isn't it? Uh, Even people say today, okay, let's take away the man, the male-female distinctions in the Bible because, you know, who wants to know about God the Father, God the Father anymore? Why don't we just have God? Or, you know, have take away all the distinctions in the Bible because, you know, it's offensive to people, it's an obstacle to people coming to faith, so let's take it out. But that's wrong, isn't it? Because it is God who changes people. And Paul says, no, he's just going to preach the word plainly. Now, we need to look at this passage a bit more closely than that. Uh, because I think that as we look at this passage, I realize that many people have the wrong idea of what it means. Now, first of all, it teaches us about uh, the nature of uh, the God of this age. okay? In verse 4, uh, literally Satan. Okay? Or, uh, now, we, how do you think of Satan? Some people dismiss Satan, they think like he's the Manchester United mascot, you know, with the pitchfork and the long tail and the two horns, okay? Or we think that, we, we think Satan only works in like demon possession, you know, like some supernatural thing like in the exorcism or something. But if you see here, Satan, his role, his primary role is actually to take the gospel away from people. Now, I always thought that Satan would stop the unbeliever from becoming a Christian. And that's the way that many people, uh, when they first look at this passage, think, yeah, 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 I believe that. Satan is taking away the gospel from the unbeliever. But if you read this passage carefully, what Paul is actually saying is, no, Satan continues to work even after you become a Christian. Look at closely at what he says here. In verse 3 he says, if our, our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So Satan actually didn't just want to stop people from becoming Christian, but after they become Christian, he wants to take them away from the gospel of the Bible and bring them to another gospel. The unbeliever here, those who are perishing, are not people who've never been Christian, it is people who are Christian, but who have left the gospel that Paul is preaching and have gone to another gospel. These are the people who Paul calls unbelievers, who Paul calls perishing. Now when you understand it that way, you understand then what is at stake. That Paul is saying if you leave our gospel, the gospel preached by the apostles, and go to another gospel, you are perishing. You are unbeliever. You, you, you are, you are in the darkness. You've gone back into the darkness. And that's why it's so, so important for us to always hold on to the pure gospel. Uh, and just hold on to Jesus, and not another gospel. now, as we read this passage, uh, we may sort of say, "Well, okay, uh, God is the one who brings light into our light, into our life story. So the lesson here is we must apply, we must pray more, uh, or we must preach more. Now, I think the application is more we are the recipients of Paul's instructions, and he is telling the Corinthian Christians, "Do not move from the gospel I." Preach to you, to another gospel, Satan is the one who is drawing you away from this gospel of Jesus, the new covenant of the Spirit, to another gospel. If you move on to this, you will perish, you will be an unbeliever, you will be in darkness. Now there's a true story, uh, I have to embellish all the details, of a pastor who went away on sabbatical for a year and he went to a liberal <coughs> theological college. Sorry, liberal, I don't mean like uh, political, right? Liberal as in very open to a lot of unbiblical ideas. ideas. He went to this liberal theological college. And he came back after his sabbatical. I'm not saying sabbatical is bad, okay? But he came back from his sabbatical with his mind filled of all these new ideas. And when he came back, after he started working, he started preaching a different gospel. A new gospel, which had nothing to do with the Bible. All sorts of these ideas that he picked up on the sabbatical all came in. He adopted them, and uh he moved on from the Bible. And the church was split. Okay, There were some people who said, look, you know, we really love our pastor. He's been here for a long time, but really, he's not preaching the Bible anymore. We should either get rid of him or we should leave. So anyway, they couldn't decide what to do, so part of the church, they left. But some of the other people, most of them stayed, because they had this pastor who had been with them for so long, and he was a nice guy, they loved him. Now see, that was a mistake, you see, because if you read what Paul is saying here, if you move from the pure gospel, if you move from the gospel of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, salvation, forgiveness and life, and you move on to something else, you've actually given up your soul, you've given up eternal life, you've given up heaven, even if you love someone so much, even if you're loyal to this person, you should say to them, look, for your sake, you cannot keep preaching this and I can't keep listening to this because it's bad for my my soul. Right? Now if one day I come and uh I start preaching to you a gospel which is different from what the Bible is. Okay, if I start giving you a message which is different, we when I move on to something else, then please don't listen to me. Because your soul will be at stake. And that's what Paul is saying here. If you if you are if your god the gospel of the Bible is veiled to you, Satan is at work in you and you need to to go back to the pure gospel. Now he goes on in verse 7 uh, to 12, and this is what he says, But we have this treasure in Charles of Clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side and not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but his life is at work in you. Now, again, uh, there must have been people who were saying, you know this Paul, he's not very impressive. We know that from the previous weeks, right? Paul, you know, Paul, he's not very impressive. He doesn't, he only writes, well, maybe he doesn't preach very well. I says, Paul's trying to say, well, look, my message is not very impressive, but I myself am not impressive as well. How do you account for that? Well, he says to them that he is a jar of clay. Uh, now a jar of clay is probably the cheapest and, uh, the most disposable, um, uh, like, uh, utensil or uh, uh, pottery or sorry, something you eat from. In the ancient world, you know, if you chip it, you crack it, you just throw it out. That's it. It's really cheap. The equivalent today would be Paul saying, we have this treasure in paper plates. That's, that's why he sees himself. So, I'm just a paper plate. I'm ordinary. I'm cheap. I'm disposable. And really, Paul, as we understand, was a very unimpressive person. Uh, you read the Bible. You read 1 and 2 Corinthians. He was not a very impressive person. Um, physically, charismatically, we, if you read... Obviously, they weren't very impressed with him personally. He's, you, you read his letter, you, you think of a big, tall guy, but you, you, know, you see him in person, he's probably a very short person. From church history, uh, people say that he had some physical infirmity. Maybe he had a, a speech defect. Maybe he, was a, he had some people say he was a hunchback. I imagine if Paul came and uh, we said, Hey, we have a guest speaker this Sunday, the Apostle Paul. And he'd come up behind the station, and you think, That's the Apostle Paul? Wow, that's, are you sure you got the right person? Right? Now, compared to this, okay, next slide. Uh, next one. Oh no, no, the picture again. Paul will not look like any of these people. Okay? He will not look impressive like these people. He will look very unimpressive. And Paul says, well, at the end, what is important is not his physical impressiveness, but the message he brings. The message he brings. If you have a diamond ring, okay, maybe a diamond itself, okay, don't worry about the ring, diamond itself in a paper cup, it doesn't diminish the value of the diamond, does it? It is still a diamond ring. The the message itself is still valuable. And Paul, he says here, is not interested in being a gold plate. Look what he says there in verse um, 10 onwards. We always carry around in our body the, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. He doesn't spend his life pursuing uh glory so that he can become the gold plate. He spends his life give, being given over to death so that other people can have the message. And that's a really important thing, isn't it? Because to him, What's important for him is not to become this great, glorious person. For him, his life is given over so that people can have the message. So, uh, I was listening to this sermon, and this pastor was saying that he was getting together a group of people in this church who are interested in doing full-time Christian work. And you know what they're going to call this group of people? The Clay Pots Club. Okay? Because... Full-time Christian uh, Christian work is not something which will build you with prestige and status in society. No one's going to say, wow, you know, you decided to become full-time minister. That's really great. right? What a great career path for you. See, if you think of the gold plates and uh, the silver or the really expensive china in the world, they will be the CEOs and the top political leaders and the business people and all that. But the clay pots and the paper plates, those are those doing uh, full-time Christian work, isn't it? he's saying, look, he's not interested in becoming, uh, presti- having prestige and glory. But instead, he's given his over his life so that people can have the message. Now again, I think that's a lesson for us, isn't it? Because uh, his warning here is, who do you follow? Uh, do you follow me, who is unimpressive, but I've given over my life so that you may have eternal life and the gospel? Or do you follow those people who want to seek glory for themselves? Now, okay, I'm reading this very thick book. It's called The Pillars of the Earth. Anybody heard of it? It's supposed to be one of the, I, I heard about it because it's supposed to be the, the best love book of the last decade in England. Okay, now it's about the building of a cathedral. So it's quite historical, he's done a lot of research obviously, and it's set in the medieval times. And in this book, uh, the good guys are always the monks who are quite humble, they've taken a vow of chastity, you know, and they don't eat much. And they're always going around helping people and serving people and trying to save people. But there are other monks as well, the bishops and whatever else, who are dressed in purple, finery, and they're not interested in helping people at all. They're only interested in themselves, in the eating, in the getting power and prestige and title and money. And 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 the same thing, the funny thing is, uh, Paul says it in his letter, I read it in this book, uh, Eugene Peterson, who writes this book, Working the, Ang- uh, the Angles, uh, says this thing. Okay, he's talking about his fellow colleagues, right? So he says, It's bitterly dis- disappointing to enter a room full of people whom you have every reason to expect to share the quest and commitments of pastoral work and find within 10 minutes that they are most definitely do not. They talk about images and statistics. They drop names. They, they discuss influence and status. Matters of God and the soul and scripture are not the grist for their mills. So I think what Paul is saying here is the same thing. It's like, who do you follow? And he's saying, look, follow me because I have given my life, not so that I'll have power and prestige, but I've given my life so that you will have life. And uh, I think even today there are many people who instead of choosing to give them their, their life so that people will have the pure gospel, they're giving their life like what Eugene Peterson says so that they will have glory. Uh, they will have prestige they will have title. And if you follow these people Paul is saying, instead of having the pure word and Then pouring themselves so that you will have that pure word, you will actually just be a tool for their promotion in life. So Paul is saying, Don't follow them, right? Don't follow not just don't follow the wrong gospel, but don't follow the wrong people. And Paul ends in verse 16 to 18, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Again, the same phrase, right? Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far away them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now what he's saying here is, uh, again, he ends with not losing heart. And he's saying that he doesn't lose heart because even in the midst of uh, suffering, of disappointment with uh, Christians and the church in Corinth, even with all the troubles that he has, he's able... Not to lose heart because he focuses on what is eternal, right? He focuses on the inside. He f- focuses on what is unseen. Now, the str- struggles and sufferings that he's talking about here, I, I think I need to make clear, is not your general uh, backache, right? Knee pain. Uh, you know, I, I notice my eyesight's not very good these last few months, right? Because I-, I can't see very well, so maybe I'm getting blind, right, or something. Or Maybe I'm just getting a, uh, I need bifocals or something, right? So he's not talking about that. He's talking about Christian suffering, particularly, because that's what he's talking about all along chapter 4. He's saying that all these sufferings that he has, in particular, as being a Christian, they are light and momentary. Look at those words, light and momentary. Uh, the word light here literally means like an insect bite. Like, you know, you get a small bite, oh, that's very insignificant, right? It's not like I could go to my wife and say, hey, you know, I got this mosquito bite. Oh, it's terrible. I'm dying, right? Okay. That's what he's saying. He uh, said, these are light and momentary. Now, what are the light and momentary struggles of Paul? Okay, next slide. Okay, this is the light and momentary struggles of Paul, right? Uh, I worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus ones. Uh, three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger of the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Now, how can you say that these are light problems? They're only light. How can you say that they you don't? Know, it's like nothing. I mean, have you guys been shipwrecked? No, I've never been shipwrecked. Stone, no, I've never been in prison. I said to visit prisoners. Um, you know, I haven't been in danger from bandits. Uh, you know, I haven't gone without sleep for a long time, right? But here, Paul says these are light problems, and why are they light? Because they are momentary, isn't it? The two words come together. Look at chapter four: light and momentary. They are light momentary because in the context of eternity, they are not that bad. That's what he's saying. See, Paul is not a super Christian. Obviously, he can lose heart. That's why he's writing this. right? He can be downhearted. Christians can be discouraged. But what stops us from being discouraged and losing our Christian world is to realize that we must look at everything from the perspective of eternity, right? Christians do suffer and when we suffer it's not because Satan is attacking us or God hates us. Someone said, you know, these are the battle, our sufferings are the battle scars that bring us to eternal glory. Right? look at what it says there. It says there in verse 17, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. These are our struggles, our battle scars as we make our way through this life to eternal glory. Now, I think we share the same uh perspective as Paul, isn't it? Because we, as Christians, struggle. Like Paul does, we might not struggle in the same way, but we struggle. But what really matters to you? I want to ask you this question. Do the outward things matter more to you or the inward things? So this morning, how long did I spend looking at the mirror? And look, oh got lines, man, everywhere. White hair. Now, we are all going to get older. We are all Wasting away outwardly, right? For the younger people, just look at the older people around you. You know, you may think that you will never look like that one day, but you will, right? And you will look worse than that. We are all wasting away outwardly. But Paul says that doesn't matter, right? Because what really matters is what is being renewed inwardly so it it, it results in us having eternal life. What, What do you spend your time on that is wasting away? I'm not saying that we shouldn't worry about our career or finances or clothes or cars, but the thing is, Paul says, What is the priority? What is the more important thing? He is able to say that it is light and momentary, he struggles because his, his eyesight, his focus is on eternity. So, what do you focus on in your life? Do you focus on the eternal things? Well, if you focus on the eternal things, then hold on to the pure gospels and make sure you follow the right people. Now, uh, in conclusion, when I first became a Christian in 1991, I had a stomach ulcer. Thank God I haven't had it since, because it wasn't very pleasant. And I think part of it was because as, after I became a Christian, I had a very severe guilty conscience, right? Everything I did, I thought was wrong, and my stomach would hurt. And even now, it happens, right, when, when I don't feel good, my stomach hurts. And when I was working in my company, uh, some of my friends, well, they weren't really friends, but they were, my colleagues were a bit anti-Christian, and it wasn't very fun. But today, uh, 2012, when I look back, it doesn't seem like much anymore, right? It's like a Oh, it's really light and momentary. And even then, for that one year after it finished, when I look back, it wasn't that bad, right? But imagine your struggles today and you look back from eternity and you look back and you look at your troubles. It is nothing, right? If you live for gazillion, million, whatever years and never die and, and, you're, and you're having joy with no pain and suffering in heaven and you look back in your life today, whatever suffering we, we, we experience as Christians today mean nothing compared to the eternity. That we will have. So what Paul is saying is always stay in that gospel, always follow the right person. Always keep your eyes fixed on eternity. Because that is the that is the only thing that matters really at the end of the day. Uh when I look at my parents or my children, right, I think, well at the end of the day, okay lah. don't do so on your exam. But make sure you're a Christian, right? Okay, hey, it doesn't matter if things go wrong as long as you make it have eternal life for the, for the rest of your, your your life that is the most important thing okay let's go to God and pray dear fathers we come before you today we truly want to pray that we will not make the mistake of the Christians in Corinth who attempted to go to a more impressive message a more powerful message a message which uh, was more attractive to them but help us to see that the only message that really matters is the message of Jesus Christ. His death, His crucifixion, His resurrection, and the promise of eternal life. We pray that we will never leave uh, the gospel that brings life and forgiveness and salvation. That we will not be impressed by other messages out there. We pray also that we will always follow the right leaders, the leaders who uh, seek to give their life uh, You know in an ordinary way, not to seek glory for themselves, but to uh, instead to give their lives, to bring uh, life to other people. And also that we ourselves may have the right attitude, the same attitude as Paul, who does not lose heart, who did not lose heart, even in the midst of much greater suffering that we go through, because he always fixed his eyes in what was unseen and not what was seen. That outwardly he knew All those things were passing away, but inwardly He was being renewed day by day. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.